Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 6, Getting Skeptical. There are some tall tales told out in the astronomy hinterlands. Sometimes these stories get picked up and run with without anyone actually checking to see if they're true. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Is Carithna really the Earth's second moon? Quick answer, no. Longer answer, no, non, nine, niet. In no way should Carithna be considered to be a moon of Earth. It isn't. Not even a little bit. Carithna, or to get technical about it, 3753 Carithna, is a near-Earth object that very clearly and very obviously orbits the Sun. It was incorrectly declared to be a second moon of Earth in an early episode of QI, a panel talk show hosted by Stephen Fry, but it just isn't true. The misunderstanding, which, not meaning to be too harsh, just seems to be the result of poor research, arises from providing our frame of reference on Earth with an unreasonable degree of centrality. In other words, if you naively assumed that Earth was the center of the solar system, then yes, you might be tricked into believing that Carithna orbits the Earth. Indeed, you might be tricked into believing that Venus, Mars, and all the other planets orbit the Earth. But come on, folks. We sorted all this out 400 years ago. Kepler's third law says that if you closely orbit the Sun, you have to orbit it really fast. But if you orbit it further out, then you can orbit it more slowly. As it happens, Carithna orbits the Sun once every 364 days. So it almost matches Earth's orbital period, and so you shouldn't be surprised to learn that it orbits the Sun at about the same distance from it as the Earth does. Hence, it sometimes comes into close proximity with the Earth. But Carithna is tiny, about 5 kilometers in diameter. So, with an insignificant mass, Carithna is insignificantly affected by the gravitational influences that work to ensure that all the massive planets orbit the Sun in a roughly flat orbital plane. Carithna's solar orbit is tilted at about 20 degrees to Earth's solar orbit, although the orbits of Earth and Carithna do not intersect at any point. But there are times when Carithna appears to approach the Earth, and then recedes away again. It is possible that for a brief moment, this might have got the first astronomers who identified Carithna in 1986 to speculate that it could have been in a wide elliptical orbit around the Earth. But after continuing to observe it, it would have soon become apparent that Carithna was just another near-Earth object in a solar orbit. In fact, there are a whole bunch of other near-Earth objects, or NEOs, in solar orbits. As of 20 October 2012, we know of 9,315 of them. And there are a whole bunch of satellites in Earth orbit, over 8,000 at last count, but the very, very large majority of them were built by us. The exact number of known natural satellites that persistently orbit the Earth is one, and it's called the Moon. But the Earth does briefly host a number of transient mini-moons, which are less than a meter or so in diameter and may loosely orbit the Earth for up to a year or more, until they drift back into a solar orbit. It's estimated that at any point in time, Earth does have a second natural satellite, 
It's just not the same satellite for any persistent length of time. And to the best of our knowledge, it has never been and never will be Kruithna. And thanks, Dharani. The lesson here is that the orbit of a celestial body can take a year or more to really nail down. So don't take a first tentative announcement as a final conclusion. Wait for the data. And now here's, well, me, talking about an astronomical press release that really didn't deserve the airtime that it got. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What do you think of this latest suggestion that the Pioneer Anomaly can be explained by the expansion of the universe? Well, to be honest, I don't think much of it. When it was released, this story was picked up by a few, perhaps over-credulous, science communicators. For example... A newly published paper claims to have found the true solution to the Pioneer Anomaly, the tiny excessive deceleration of the Pioneer Probe, in the laws of physics, and this one is... Science. And, once again, I did first write to the Skeptics Guide team to point out the problem. I do always write first. It's polite and respectful. Anyhow, my scepticism arises from knowing that the October 2012 paper by Sergei Kapikin, which I probably mispronounced, came out just a month after a September 2012 paper in a publication associated with the journal Nature, announcing confirmation that thermal radiation recoil could completely account for the unanticipated spacecraft deceleration that represents the so-called Pioneer Anomaly. Kopekin's claim that thermal radiation accounts for just 15% of the Pioneer Anomaly arises from a technically correct but way out-of-date citation of the initial announcements of the Pioneer Anomaly back in the 1980s. Those 1980 announcements were superseded by 30 more years of intensive research, which resulted in the 2012 article by Turashev et al., which I probably also mispronounced. Turashev's laborious and unprecedented analysis of the Pioneer data really did confirm that thermal radiation recoil was the cause of the Pioneer spacecraft's unanticipated deceleration. Kapikin's paper, which just came out of nowhere, is really about potential inaccuracies in astronomical measurements that could arise from the expansion of the universe. Perhaps unwisely, Kapikin pointed to the Pioneer anomaly as an example of such a potential inaccuracy, but he made no apparent attempt to analyse the Pioneer data himself to justify his claim. So it seems he has based his theory on a phenomenon which is no longer thought to exist. Kapikin's commentary makes it quite clear that he thinks the universe's expansion had been affecting photons moving to and from the Pioneer spacecraft. In other words, that the solar system was actually expanding in the same way that the whole universe is expanding. There are not a lot of cosmologists around who would be comfortable with this view. 
Current thinking is that most of the expansion of the universe involves expansion of space-time between galaxies and galactic clusters. The slightest amount of gravitational attraction between massive objects is thought to vastly outweigh the potential space-time expansion that can take place in very empty intergalactic voids. It has been estimated that at million light-year scales of galactic clusters, the outward push that drives the overall expansion of the universe is 10 million times smaller than the gravitational pull that is prevalent across a galactic cluster. Also, we need to consider that we didn't stop exploring the cosmos after the Pioneer missions, which were launched in the early 70s and were operational until the early 2000s. Currently, like today, we are tracking the still operational Voyager 1 and 2 probes, which are way further out than either Pioneer 10 or 11, and we are currently guiding the New Horizons spacecraft on a pinpoint trajectory for a flyby of Pluto in 2015. You don't hear NASA rocket scientists discussing how they have to keep modifying the trajectory of their spacecraft to compensate for the expansion of the universe. And that's because they don't. So folks, I think the large majority of the scientific community is in agreement that there is no Pioneer anomaly anymore. The Pioneer spacecraft were very slightly slowed down by the thermal radiation from their heated surfaces. It took us more than 30 years to confirm this, but we did eventually confirm it. So, if you want to propose that the solar system is expanding, the first thing you will need is evidence, and since it is an extraordinary claim, you will need some extraordinary evidence. And thanks, Steve. Perhaps the real punchline to this one was that the research was funded by a grant from the Templeton Foundation. This shouldn't be seen as automatically damning, but it is what you might call a red flag. And that's it for today's episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. Got your own questions? Just send them to cheapastro at gmail.com. We might get the answer wrong, but we will try hard not to, and if we do bollocks it up, that will make for a good follow-up episode. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Nalick. Bye.